Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we are going to be in Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 1. We're starting the New Testament. We're so excited. That's right. I want to begin by reminding you that in the Americas, there was a sign given about his birth. And when those who didn't believe in that sign decided to put to death those that believed in that sign— they were discouraged. I can't imagine how discouraging that would have been to think that my family's going to be put to death if the sign isn't given. And one night Nephi goes out and he's just kind of pleading with the Lord, please don't destroy the righteous. And the Lord says, look, the sign's going to be given tonight. And that night, imagine the weight on their shoulders of thinking that if the sign isn't given, my family's going to be put to death. And then the sun goes down and it doesn't get dark, and you knew that the sign was being given. Now, that sign was light when there should have been darkness. Can you imagine the rejoicing in their heart when that sign was given? I hope that's how you feel about the opportunity to study the life and the character of Jesus the way they must have felt when that sign was given and there was light instead of darkness, and they rejoiced. May that be our starting point, is that we get to talk this year about the coming of a God into the world. We get to see him live and breathe and talk to people and do miracles, and we get to study his teachings and watch him raise the dead and heal the blind. And we get to see him interact with us, and we get to fall in love with him all over again. And I hope that's how you feel as we jump into it. It's going to be great. I'm really excited as we cover this. And I must say, we just finished Malachi. And Malachi ends several hundred years before Matthew. And so in a lot of Christian traditions, they have this corpus of literature called the Apocrypha. And in the Apocrypha, they have a segment of texts called First and Second Maccabees, and these texts cover quite a bit of time between Malachi and Matthew to kind of cement these two books we call the New and Old Testament so that we can see what's happening historically. And in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we don't read First and Second Maccabees in church, we don't read the apocryphal literature in church, but we're not discouraged from reading it. In fact, the Lord even says in the 91st section of the Doctrine and Covenants that it would behoove us to read it. We should, and read it by the Spirit. And so in the spirit of section 91, and in the spirit of our Christian brothers and sisters across the world that do read this, I want to make sure that we cover some of the basics, because the things that happen between Malachi and Matthew really frame the worldview of Jesus and his apostles, and the expectations of what it meant to have a Messiah in Judea in the first century. And it also framed not only their worldview, but Jesus' words. You see, when we read Jesus' words through two different lenses, we kind of see two different messages. If we take the lens of the messianic expectation of the hundreds of years before Jesus, we might have expectations that are not what Jesus intended. But if then if we read the same words of Jesus through the lens of 
post-Jesus, what we call the primitive Christian church, we see a different message because we're using a different lens. And I want to talk about both lenses as we go through the Gospels, because the apostles are reading history through the lens of the time before Jesus, and we read the Gospels through the lens of our time period. We're using different lenses, and so I think acknowledging that and reading it will really help us. So with that, let's jump into the time periods and the events between Malachi and Matthew. There's really six time periods that we're going to discuss. The first is the Persian era, and it's from about 530 to about 336 BCE, or before Common Era. Now, you can be a Christian, and you can say before Common Era, and one of the reasons why I say it is because then I don't have to get into the dating of like, okay, was Jesus born in 4 BC, or was he born in 1 BC? And I I just like to say before Common Era. I say that a lot, and it just means before the Common Era that we call the Common Era. So 536 to 336 is the Persian time period. This is when the Second Temple is constructed. This is when the Jews seek to regain their autonomy and rebuild their religion after they return from exile. And it's in this time period where we read some of these books that we've discussed in the Old Testament, things like Nehemiah and Haggai and Malachi. From this time period, we get into a really big deal that happened anciently, and that is a man by the name of Alexander. Typically, he's called Alexander the Great. And he according to historians, was able to, quote, conquer the world. I use that in air quotes because he doesn't conquer the world per se, but he conquers the known world as at least as it was known to the historians of his time period. He goes from Macedonia, takes Greece, comes into the Levant, Egypt, goes all the way into India. And this is known by historians as the Hellenization of the ancient world. And it's affected by Alexander's conquest of the known world. This era or this time period is really 336 to 323 BCE. It's just that 13-year span of his military conquests. You see, he would go to a, a nation or place, and then he would establish a temple. He would make sure that there were learned people that could teach Greek, and he basically disseminated Greek culture throughout the ancient Near East, but not only the ancient Near East, but as far as India, all over. And so after this, he's a young man, and he dies And it was kind of unexpected. In fact, some people think maybe he was poisoned. We can't settle that in this podcast. But after he dies, he had four powerful generals, and they wanted to know, as he's about to die, they say, Alexander, what do you want us to do? Who's going to be in charge? And Alexander's response was, whichever one of you is the strongest. And so they kind of carve up Alexander's kingdom. They kind of parted out into four bits. And I'm going to call this time period, as it relates to Jesus, I'm going to call this the Egyptian era. And that's about 323 to 200 BCE. You see, the Egyptians were one of the four that ruled over the Levant, that ruled over the place we today call Israel. They're called the Ptolemies or the Ptolemaic dynasty. And according to Josephus, Ptolemy was one of these leaders that was very interested in books. And according to Josephus' writings, Ptolemy II was so into books that he wanted to get a copy of the Hebrew Scriptures, and he wanted them in Greek for his own library. And so according to legend, there were about 70 translators that translated the Hebrew Bible from Hebrew into Greek, 
in 72 days. And it was a miraculous event. I mean, when you read these stories of how it was translated, it's pretty spectacular. And however you view history, the one thing we know is we have a Greek translation of the Bible. And it takes place sometime between 323 and 200 BCE. And this is a time period where the Jews that live in and around Jerusalem have some autonomy. But they also are struggling because their religious ideas are kind of butting up against Hellenistic thought. And so they know that to preserve their religion, they're going to need to incorporate these Greek ideas. They're going to have to teach the scriptures from Greek. And there's a a really big challenge during this time period because like anything, like any time period, we have the old conservatives and the new people that are kind of up and rising, and they see this new culture. And so sometimes we have this mixing of the old and the new. And a lot of times that's called syncretism. I like to call it making peanut butter cups. We take the peanut butter and the chocolate and we mix it together. And so some of these ideas in Judaism are swirling around that have some Greek flavor in them. So after the Egyptian era, we get into what's called the Syrian era. You see north of Egypt is a country that is called Syria. And When the Syrians come down to Egypt, they fight in what's called the Battle of Panium in the summer of 200 BCE. Now, this battle takes place in the same place that happens in Matthew 16. In Matthew 16, when Matthew tells us that Jesus goes to the coast of Caesarea Philippi, I remember the first time I read this, I had this vision in my head of Jesus going to the beach. He's going to the coast of Caesarea Philippi. No, there's no beach there. Where he's going is to this place, it's called today Banias, but this location is at the foot of Mount Hermon, and there's a spring there, and there's a valley there. And you see, 200 years before Jesus, there was an army there, and the Egyptians and the Syrians fought in this massive battle, and the Syrians were led by this guy named Antiochus III, and he conquers the Egyptian army. And so the people that are going to control Judea, the power balance shifts in 200 BC. Egypt doesn't have control anymore, but the Syrians do. Now, Antiochus III actually did some good things. He gave the Jews some tax relief. They were able to live according to the laws of their forefathers. Everything seemed to be going good until about 168. There was this guy named Antiochus IV, and he set about reversing all those changes. And he is, I like to call him the Darth Vader of the intertestamental period. He does some horrible things to the Jews. He forbids sacrifice. He forbids women from having their children circumcised. He forbids the observance of the Sabbath and of feasts. He pillages Jerusalem. He even kills a pig on the altar. He steals money from the temple and desecrates the temple, offers sacrifices to Zeus. Basically, he does some horrible things. And it's in the context of this desecration of the temple that a lot of scholars look at the book of Daniel and say, this is when Daniel was textualized. This is when Daniel was put forth as a way for the Jews to have faith that this time period of desolation would end. Many consider this to be the abomination of desolation that's discussed in the scriptures of Antiochus Epiphanes desecration of the temple. And so with that in mind, we come to our fifth era, 
and that's called the Maccabean era. You see, there was an elderly priest by the name of Mattathias of the house of Hasmon that wasn't going to stand for anymore. And so the story goes like this. He's at the temple, and there's a Syrian official forcing people to offer heathen sacrifices, and Mattathias rebels. He kills the Syrian official, he flees to the mountains with his family, and many faithful Jews join the cause. And after he dies, three of his sons basically lead a revolt against the Syrian overlords, and one of them is a guy by the name of Judas Maccabeus. And so that's where we get the notion of the Maccabean era, or the Maccabean revolt. You see, these individuals rally the Jews, and they're able to get rid of these overlords that are taxing them and desecrating their temple, and they kind of have a period of almost 100 years of autonomous rule. They have their own temple worship. They're not being forced to pay tribute to Syria. And this is also the context for the Feast of Hanukkah. And so by about 142 BC, they have this leader named Simon that really solidifies their independence. And this is really an independent state from about 142 to 63 BC. Now, this is very important because the Maccabean era is fresh on the minds of the apostles. And so when we talk about a Messiah, a Messiah is a king, but he's also a deliverer. And in the Jewish mindset of Jesus's day, a Messiah wasn't necessarily an individual that would come from heaven, come to earth, die, and be resurrected. That wasn't their view. Their view of a Messiah was a person who would come and take away their masters, the people that were charging tribute or their overlords, and help them to establish an autonomous nation. That's really what the expectation of a Messiah was. And a lot of this is coming out of their texts, but it's also coming out of history. History. And I think the Maccabean era is a lens that we have to acknowledge when we read the Gospels. And so why does the Maccabean era end in 63 BC, you might ask? And this is the sixth era of history before the Gospels, and this is called the Roman era. And we have this individual named Pompey, who is a Roman, who comes into Jerusalem as conqueror. And one of the leaders of the city locks his forces out locks the gates and says, you can't come in here. And Pompey says, "Mm, yeah, we'll see. And so after about three months of a siege, Pompey is able to penetrate the walls. Roman forces come into Jerusalem and Pompey storms into the Holy of Holies at the protest of the priests. The priests are like, hey, you can't come in here. And Pompey is like, I'm going in. And he goes in and he comes out and he questions the Jews. He says, are you guys atheists? You guys don't have a statue in there of your God. And then the priests have to explain to Pompey, hey, we don't do religion the way you Romans do. We don't make images to our gods. So in 47 BC, the leader of Rome, Julius Caesar, he appoints Antipater the Idumean as the leader of Judea. And Herod I is his son. So Herod I, the son of Antipater, eventually becomes king of the Jews around 40 BCE. Okay. Now, although he is called Herod the Great by many people, this Herod plans out and carries out massive building projects. And one of them is the remodeling of the Second Temple. Now, he is a royal Hellenist, and he also is detested by the Hasmonean family. Now, remember, if you remember the Hasmonean family or that dynasty, that's the group of individuals that kind of ruled the land in the fifth time period, in 165 to 63. Now, Herod's in this really tough position. You see, he's detested by the old guard, 
but the new guard, the Romans, put him in play. And then to make matters worse, Herod kills every descendant of the Hasmoneans that he can find, even his own wife, Marianne. And then he proceeds to murder his own sons. So when we read in Matthew, we're not going to do it this week, but next week when we talk about the murder of the children, historically we know that this guy, Herod, or Herod the Great as he's called by some, I don't think Jesus would call him that, but he murdered his own two sons. And some individuals said of Herod that it would be better to be his pig than to be his son. Now, whether that was said or not in the time of Herod, I think it is evident that Herod was a guy you wouldn't want to be related to. Now, I geek about this a lot in the show notes, so I'm just going to say this. Herod is a political hot mess, and he's in what I would call an untenable position. You have the Romans in there, nobody wants him. You have the Jews that want to have some of them to have the Hasmoneans in charge, but then there's a problem because the Hasmoneans that have been in charge are not descendants of David. So we have a whole bunch of Jews that say, we don't want those guys in charge. We want a son of David in charge. And then you've got Herod, who's none of these things, and he's in charge. And frankly, he's paranoid. So when we read some of these things, these events about Herod early on in Matthew, we can kind of see historically some truthfulness to these things. Okay, so we've gone through these six time periods. We've gone from being ruled by foreigners to being ruled by a horrible foreigner, Antiochus Epiphanes IV, to self-rule almost 100 years. And now we're in the Roman period, Herod's in charge, and it's with this that the Gospels open up. And we start talking about this Messiah that's to be born. Now, before we really crack open Matthew chapter 1, Bryce, why don't you talk about ways that we can approach the New Testament? So I love the fact that we have four Gospels to study, but that does pose a challenge when you tackle how do I study the New Testament, because you've got four accounts, which is wonderful in symbolism. How many accounts of the Savior's life are there? I am positive that one account of my life would exhaust it. You would not need any more than just a few brief pages of my life. A great figure like Abraham Lincoln or some great figures of the past, maybe there would be enough for two accounts, but the Savior's life, we get four accounts. And if we add Third Nephi, we've got five accounts of his life, and no amount would be too many. So I love the fact that we have four Gospels to study. But that does pose a challenge. How are you going to read them? There are a couple options. Let me just throw out your options, pros and cons. Option number one is you read them sequentially. You read all of Matthew, you read all of Mark, all of Luke, and then all of John. It's easy to know where you left off and where you need to pick up. The challenge of that is you can't necessarily see the other renditions at the same time, which bring light on the situation. So as Matthew describes an event, sometimes it's very beneficial to see how Mark and Luke and John describe the event so I can get a whole picture of the event. So the other way to read it is harmoniously. So you go through the events of his life. Now, there's no way you can put the Gospels in a perfect harmony. But the advantage of reading Harmonious is you can take one event at a time and have a better picture of that event. If you want to understand his baptism, then you're going to pull in all the accounts of his baptism. If you want to understand a sermon, you're going to pull in all the accounts of that sermon. You're going to see all the different nuances and what each gospel writer added. So it's perhaps the best way to see the event. 
come follow me kind of follows that process. And so there are lots of harmonies that you can use. There's a harmony in the topical guide that's pretty good. Let me introduce you to a dear friend of mine by the name of John Weaver, wrote a beautiful harmony. He presents two basic harmonies. One is he goes through the events of the Savior's life and pulls whichever scriptural account gives us the greatest picture of that event, and then he just includes those harmoniously. The other thing that John Weaver does is he presents a side-by-side comparison of all of the accounts, and he includes Joseph Smith changes in the footnotes and Greek translations. It's a beautiful resource, and I'd highly recommend it. John Weaver, Behold the Lamb of God. You can find it in many places. There was a second-century Christian that tried to do this, and they call it the diatessaron, for those of you interested, and you can Google it and read about that. And this is right around 160, 170 of the common era, and he really tried to put this together. This is just me, Bryce. I don't. I don't try to put all the Gospels together and to make it into one flowing narrative. That's the hardest way to read it. I I, I just can't. And part of it is because I see just my OCD brain. I see the contradictory things that are going on. And by the way, I want you to know I love the contradiction. I love that there's differing accounts and that not everything matches up, because Bryce, to me, that's history. If you and I were to have an experience today, let's say we went for a walk in the park and we saw something, and then 10 years from now, we were to both write about today, it's not going to line up. And so I'm totally okay with that. Now, somebody might say, well, you're not being faithful then. You're, you're pointing out that they don't line up. And I think, no, I'm trying to do a faithful reading, and I'm just acknowledging, hey, Luke's going to say it this way, and Matthew's going to say it this way, and I glory in the difference. Why? I like all four Gospels, and I'm really not picking a lot of times what I think is the best. Now, I will say this. When I read Matthew 5 through 7, this is just me, Mike Day, I think Matthew 5 through 7 is one speech given in one place, and Matthew's the only one who presents it that way. So there'll be times when I say, hey, this is how I think it is, but I don't know. I wasn't there, but here's my reasons. Here's my evidence, and Bryce is going to do the same thing. And so Bryce and I are not going to read the Gospels identically. We have different approaches, and I think seeing a couple different approaches can actually be valuable to you as a learner. And frankly, I don't think the Gospel writers have the same approach. There's four different accounts. So I think there's beauty here, but we just have to acknowledge that it's not all perfectly lined up. Yeah. I think like in Matthew 13, I suspect Jesus didn't give all those parables in one setting, but that Matthew was pulling them from different episodes. So you see that variety even in the book of Matthew, where three chapters are one sermon and one chapter is multiple sermons. And so the challenge of the harmony is it gets very complicated, and no one has a perfect harmony. So if you want to read it harmoniously, then just prepare to do a lot of jumping around and putting puzzle pieces together and keeping track of which portion goes with which portion, and that gets complicated, but it is a valuable way to see Jesus as he lived his life. Let me give you a third way. This is how I read and often how I teach the New Testament in my classes. I really like the chronology of Luke. Three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are what we call the synoptic Gospels. They're very similar. Synoptic is see the same. I just had to throw that out there. I like that. Of the three, I have found it easier to harmonize Matthew and Mark into Luke. So I read Luke and I pull in Matthew and Mark and John as often as that will help me understand what's going on, but I let Luke kind of determine the chronology. 
And then I do that up until his final week. And then once we hit his final week, I harmonize that week. What do all of them say about Sunday? What do they say about Monday? What do they all say about Tuesday? So I can see the events of that last week as completely as possible by putting the four accounts together. So that's just how I read it, but other people even find that frustrating and confusing. So that's the challenge you're going to face, is you have to find a way to read the Gospels that works for you. And I don't have one way. I like to read them so many different ways. Like there's times when I read the synoptics and I kind of try to put them together, and there's times when I, I certainly like to read John as a standalone, but I also like to read each of them as standalone witnesses because they do have different perspectives. And so I really can't decide on what my favorite way is to read them. But the one thing I can say, read them. I think reading the Gospels is the ticket, and reading them brings the Spirit. And I just testify of that. You, you feel the Spirit of the Master when you just start reading the words. Yeah. So that being said, I think we should pause a moment and let the Gospel writers kind of give us some cautionary tales as to what they're writing and how they felt about it, and some of the cautions that they're giving about it. For example, I love how Luke begins. Luke chapter 1, verse 1, "...for as many as have taken in hand to set in order a declaration of those things." And I'm going to paraphrase that. Given all the books out there and everything that's been said about Jesus and everything that we could possibly read, let's focus, verse 1, on the things which are most surely believed among us. And I think Luke is saying, let's stick with the things that are most surely believed. I love that verse 2, Luke says, I'm going to deliver them as they were delivered to me. Let's be careful that we don't give people our embellishments of what Jesus did and what Jesus said, but that we present him pure. I mean, let's call this out. He wasn't there. He wasn't there. But he knew people that were. And he's delivering it to us as it was delivered to him. Therefore, my obligation is to deliver it to others the way it's being delivered to me. I don't embellish it. And then verse 3 it seemeth good unto me, having had perfect understanding of all things. Now, I know that word perfect needs to be softened and balanced, but I'm going to teach the things that I clearly understand. I raise a question mark about those who embellish on how Jesus was conceived or his marital status. Let's focus on the things most surely believed among us. Let's present it as they're delivered to us, the things that we clearly understand. And then verse 4, make sure that you deliver your testimony of the things that we are teaching. Verse 4, he says, that thou mightest know the certainty of those things. I am telling you this story so that you can know him. Now, that leads me to John, but I want to go to the end of John. John chapter 21, verse 25. John says, And there were also many other things which Jesus did, the which, if they should be written every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Four accounts is nothing compared to what could have been written. 
He did so many more things and said so many more things that weren't written. So why is what's written written? Go back to the previous chapter, John chapter 20, verse 31, he says, but these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. Now, taking that back to Luke's introduction, I am writing this so that you might know the certainty. The reason we have what we have is because these four writers felt like this story would help you understand who he was and that by coming to know him, you might have life eternal. So focus on the things that draw you, your family, your class closer to him, that they might, quote Luke chapter 1 verse 4, know the certainty of these things. Maybe as another witness to the way Luke is introducing this is in 3 Nephi chapter 11, when Jesus descends among the Nephites, he says, come, thrust your hands into my side, into my hands, into my feet, so that you can see with your eyes, feel with your hands, know of a surety, and bear record. I think that's how we need to approach the New Testament. Let's stay away from the fringes, the things that we don't fully understand. Let's declare it as it's been declared, and then let's do it so that it builds faith. So it leads people to know him, and by knowing him, receive that salvation that comes from him. That's how the gospel writers introduce their work. So let's jump into Matthew. We don't know a lot about him. I'm just going to say Matthew is going to work to incorporate so many passages of the Hebrew Bible and to use them to reflect Jesus's divinity, that he's the Son of God, and that Jesus is the fulfillment of these types that were found in the Hebrew Bible. And if you remember, a type is something that foreshadows a future fulfillment. And so we'll see this as we go through the text. In the very beginning of Matthew chapter 1, actually it reflects some of these ideas, that Matthew is incorporating things that the Jews would understand to teach that Jesus is the Messiah. You see, he uses the names of these individuals in his genealogical line to prove that the, Jesus is a son of David, that he is the rightful heir of the throne of David. And not only that, Mike, but as he gives that lineage, I love that he points out anomalies. For example, he says that Jesus was a son of Judah, who begat Perez and Zerah of Tamar. It's like he's pointing out that whole story about adultery. He points out that Boaz begat Obed of Ruth. Now, rarely does he point out who the mom is unless there's a story behind it. Tamar is a whole story, kind of a messy story. Ruth was an outsider. And then he points out in verse 6 that Jesse begat David, and David the king begat Solomon of her that had been the wife of Urias. So notice that as he gives that lineage, he also points out the messiness and I love that because it tells me that if you have come from a messy line, if you were born into a family where parents were not faithful to their covenants or didn't love the Savior, you can overcome the messiness of a family line. I just love that in that lineage, he points out Jesus came from Tamar. 
It's pretty awesome. The adulterer. I, I love it. Jesus came from Ruth, the outsider. Jesus came from Bathsheba and David, and yet he was the Messiah. He was, in fact, the Son of God. There's so much in here. I, I got to say, there's a great article called The Five Women in Matthew's Genealogy as Paragons of Virtue. It's in a book called Studies in Matthew's Gospel, Literary Design, Intertextuality, and Social Setting. It's a fascinating read, and there's all kinds of ways to interpret this. Let's just first talk about the names of these individual women. We have Mary, the mother of Jesus. She's with child, and yet she's not married. So that's going to put her in a really vulnerable position in her culture. Tamar is from Genesis 38. Tamar is this individual that is stripped of her rights. Her fertility rights are taken from her when her husband dies, and Judah does not honor her by letting her marry the son that is to be her husband. So she claims her rights, and she does a great reversal in the narrative of the trickster and is able to obtain fertility through her own action. And Judah is the one who gets reversed. Rahab, the woman Rahab is that individual at the city of Jericho. And she, according to the text, is a prostitute. And at the risk of her very life, she allows the spies into the city. And then last two, Ruth, remember her in the book of Ruth, she's in a vulnerable position when she proposes marriage to Boaz. And then finally, Bathsheba is in a really difficult position when David claims her as wife in the midst of the conflict between David and Uriah. And like Bryce said, all five of these women are outsiders from what we would call the norm of Jewish history. Raymond Brown says, that there's something extraordinary or irregular in their union with their partners. It's a deviation from the current pattern. These five women are outside the normal course of events and serve to show that precisely through these eccentric individuals, God will fulfill Israel's history. I like that. That's a great quote by biblical scholar Raymond Brown. There are a lot of things that these five women have in common. One of the things I find that they all have in common is because of their circumstances, every single one of these women is in a very vulnerable position. All five of them are in a unique circumstance due to their decisions. They have this opportunity to either negate or to perpetuate the kingdom of Israel. If Ruth doesn't propose marriage to Boaz, we don't have the Davidic line. Just think about that. So these women take great risks to perpetuate Israel's history, and because they do, because these women are active, they're vital, and they are full of force or self-will, they're able to bring about God's purposes. One scholar said, had these women not acted, Israel's history would have been cut short. These women were actively engaged in bringing about God's purposes, even at the risk of their own lives. And so these five women are very significant. Now, what I'm about to say, not everybody agrees, but I, I want to say this because I think this is another reading. Another reading of this genealogical line is to show that God fixes broken things. The 38th chapter of Genesis is not an easy chapter to read, and the decisions Tamar makes are difficult ones, and they're messy, and yet God brings about beauty. So this is Isaiah 61 reflected in the genealogical line. Isaiah 61 is that text that talks about God can take ashes and he can convert them into beauty. 
I honor these women. I look at these women as pillars of strength. In fact, even in our slides, we kind of pay a tribute to these five women as paragons of virtue or strength or power. Because if you think about it, it's a lot to risk your life. And historically, after you read 1,200 pages of the Old Testament and you look back and you're on the top of the mountain and you're looking down, you say, there would be no mountain, there would be no kingdom if it weren't for these women. And so I pay respect and honor to them as individuals. So with that, let's just look at verse 17. So he kind of covers the three groups. We go from Abraham to David, David to Babylon, and then Babylon to Christ. Those are the three chunks, the three groups, and each segment of those three has 14 names mentioned. And so we read in verse 17, Matthew says, so all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David to the carrying into Babylon are 14, and from the carrying into Babylon to Christ are 14. So with verse 17, Matthew ends the narrative, and I just want to throw this out there, that maybe Matthew's playing with his audience. You see, his audience are Jews, they know Hebrew, and the name of David is Dalit Val Dalit, it's pronounced David. There's three characters, and according to some, some of the mystics that are in Judaism, they would attach numbers to these letters. And so Dalit is the fourth character in Hebrew, Vau is the sixth, and then we're back to Dalit. Well, what do we have? We have four, six, four. They add this into the number 14, and thence they would say the number of David is 14. Now, if this interests you, we put some stuff in the show notes. Just know that not everybody agrees, but I think that verse 17 is Matthew is basically having some fun with his audience, showing them another way to see Jesus as the fulfillment of the Davidic promise. Because if we geeked out and we looked at every single name in the line of Jesus, it would have a lot more names. So Matthew's being selective, and I think he's being selective on purpose. So let's turn to Luke chapter 1. Now we get to focus on two of the greatest individuals in the New Testament. They are John and Mary. One of them will prepare the world for Jesus. The other one will prepare Jesus for the world. And both of those roles are extremely significant. And all of us take those roles in one way or another. Now, before we jump into that, let's do a little bit of history. Let's get John here. Now, that means we need to talk about his father, Zacharias, his mother, Elizabeth. Okay, so if you go to Luke chapter 1, we read about Zacharias. We read in verse 5, There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias. And then it says that his wife's name was Elizabeth. And then Luke makes sure to note that they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. But there's a problem. Verse 7 of Luke chapter 1 says that Elizabeth and Zacharias don't have any children. It says that they're sterile. That's, that's where, really where we get the word sterile. They're not able to have children. The English in the King James reads that they were barren and they were well stricken in years. And so we have here at the beginning of Luke's narrative a faithful couple that are without child. They're not being blessed with fertility. Now, I know in our modern world with our modern lenses, there's nothing wrong with you if you can't have children. It doesn't mean God doesn't love you. But we have to take off our modern lenses and we have to read the text 
the way they would have read it. This is Luke's perspective, and I believe what Luke is trying to to do here is to show us God's hand in their life by giving them a son. In a way, Luke is channeling that idea of Father Abraham, this mighty patriarch that in his old age doesn't have a child. And so where is he? Well, we read that in verse 8, 9, and 10, he is in the temple. Now, he's literally, verse 11 says, at the right side of the altar of incense. So we're in the hakal, we're in the big room right before the veil, and right there at the altar of incense, which John says that altar and the smoke that arises from it represents the prayers of the saints. That's what parts the veil. He's there, and an angel comes. Gabriel comes and says, you're going to have a son. And he tells him in verse 13, fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard, and thy wife Elizabeth shall bear a son, and thou shalt call his name John. And thou shalt have joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice at his birth. So what are the qualities that John had that will help me influence others and prepare them for Christ? I become like John when I become a missionary. Or when I go to work and I need to influence the people around me who don't know Jesus. In my everyday life, as I interact with people who do not know the Savior, I need to be more like John. So what are the qualities that John had? And I love the first one. Speaking of John, the angel says to Zacharias in verse 14, Thou shalt have joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice at his birth. That's the kind of person that best prepares the world for Jesus. The kind of person that makes them happy and lifts them. The kind of person that people say, I'm better because I know you. The kind of person that brings joy to others. That causes people to say, I am so glad that you were born. I am so glad that you came into this world. Be friendly and kind and courageous. I remind you that the Lord told the sons of Mosiah when they went on their mission to the Lamanites to be good examples. Now tell me, did Ammon bring joy and rejoicing into Lamoni's life? That's how you prepare the world for Jesus. Number two, back in verse 15, he shall be great in the sight of the Lord. Now, I think that needs a little clarification. Let me give you a couple cross-reference that I think clarify that idea of being great in the eyes of God. In section 50, that talks about basically how to do missionary work, how to edify, and how to teach and lead a discussion. He says in verse 13, I, the Lord, ask you this question, unto what were you ordained? To preach the gospel by my Spirit. And then later in verse 26, he says, he that is ordained of God and sent forth. That's kind of the mission of John, right? To go out into the world and to prepare them. He that is ordained and sent forth, the same is appointed to be the greatest. Notwithstanding, he is the least and the servant of all. Now, that seems like a contradiction until you ponder that. I want you to ponder, how can I be the greatest and the least at the same time? Here's how I interpret that verse. If I think I'm the greatest, then as far as doing God's work, I'm the least. I'm the least capable of spreading his message in a divine way. Pride will get in my way every time. But if I consider myself the least and the servant of all, in God's eyes, 
I become the greatest. I am the most able in that moment to do his work. In other words, I become great in the eyes of God when I consider myself the least. And I become the least, so to speak, in the eyes of God when I consider myself the greatest. Let me give you another example of that. In the New Testament, Jesus contrasts what the world thinks is greatness and how he basically says that is not greatness in the kingdom. He says in Matthew chapter 20, Jesus called them unto him and said, you know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them. And they that are great, or I'm going to add, they that think they are great, exercise authority upon them. But it shall not be so among you. But whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. That is what makes you great in the eyes of God, because you consider yourself a servant to everybody. And if you take that approach like Ammon did with Lamona, and you walk in there, and you bring joy and rejoicing to Lamoni's life, and you consider yourself a servant, then in the eyes of the Lord, You are the person he wants out in front preparing the world for Jesus because you will do it well, because your focus is on serving and helping and bringing you to Christ by loving you. So there's number two on my list, bring joy and rejoicing to the world. Number three, back in verse 15 of Luke 1, he shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. And I think that's a reference to a covenant-keeping saint, a covenant-keeping Israelite. We're not 100% sure what covenant that refers to. Is it Nazarite? Is it not? We don't know definitively. But clearly, I think it's a reference to this young man will keep covenants with God. And I think it goes safely to say that if I'm going to influence the world, I have to be living my covenants. I have to be covenanting with Christ to be better. Harold B. Lee said it this way, you cannot lift another soul until you are standing on higher ground than he is. You must be sure if you would rescue the man that you yourself are setting the example of what you would have him be. You cannot light a fire in another soul unless it is burning in your own soul. If I am inviting people to come to Christ and be covenant-making people, I must be a covenant-keeping person. So number three, I need to keep my covenants. Number four, back in verse 15, the angel declares that John would be filled with the Holy Ghost even from his mother's womb. The earlier in my life I begin to seek the Holy Ghost and make it a part of me, the more I will be able to lead the world to Christ. I must be filled with the Holy Ghost. I must have oil in my vessel if I'm going to light the way for someone else. Do the things that fill your life with the Holy Ghost and start as soon as you possibly can. Now, number five, verse 16, what is the main task John needs to do? And I love the word here. Verse 16 is, I need to turn people to the Lord. I have to turn them. Now, in verse 17, he gives a couple of examples. He will turn fathers to children. 
he will turn the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and make ready a people prepared for their Lord. My job is to turn people from sin, perhaps, to righteousness, from discouragement and despair to hope, from darkness to light. That is what John does. That is what every missionary and every priesthood leader and every young women's leader in this whole church is supposed to do. Turn people to him. Turn their hearts to him. Now, let me jump ahead in our Come Follow Me just as an example. Let me show you John do that very thing. In John chapter 1, we see John preaching. And then in verse 29, the next day, John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, right there, that is the Son of God. Behold the Lamb of God. Now, that's what my life needs to do. My life needs to take everyone who's listening to me or in my stewardship, and I need to point to Jesus and say, right there, that's the Messiah. Now, there comes a moment where they may cling to me. They may love me. They may be very grateful that I've taught them. So turn to John chapter 3. John is going to face that situation. In verse 26, some of his disciples come to him and say, Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond Jordan to whom thou bearest witness, he's baptizing and everyone's going to him. In other words, people are jealous for John's sake. People are leaving John and going to Jesus. They come to John and say, what are we going to do? Everyone's leaving you to go to Jesus. And John says, basically, that's the point. He says, a man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. Again, this is John three twenty six through 30. You yourselves bear witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I am sent before him. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because the bridegroom's voice. This my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. John said to his disciples, he must increase, but I must decrease. Bringing them to me, having them love me is only a preliminary step. Being a great leader in the church so that the youth love you is a preliminary step because then we have to say, there's Jesus, go follow him. And we have to do it in such a way that we decrease and he increases. Don't get in the way of people turning to Christ. Mike and I have that same concern with our podcast. We want to make sure that you don't come to us, but that you turn to the scriptures and turn to him that you find him. Now, that's a beautiful list. And as you study the rest of Luke chapter one, see if you can add to that list. What are the qualities that John had that will help me influence others and prepare the world for Jesus? So now we get to focus on Mary. Mary had the incredible assignment to prepare Jesus for the world. So if we go to Luke chapter 1, we read in verse 26, the sixth month the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now that's north of Jerusalem. That's in the hill country above the Sea of Galilee. And so Mary's in this place, and it says in verse 27 that the angel came to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, thou 
that art highly favored. The Lord is with thee, blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and shalt bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. Now, in the Greek, it's Jesus. That's how it would be pronounced. But it's really a combination of two Hebrew words. The name Jesus is Yehoshua. We have Yahweh, yod heh vav heh Yehovah is how we commonly pronounce it. Then we have the Hebrew verb, the word for save. It's Yesha. So we have Yahweh plus Yesha. So what do we have? We have Yehoshua. And that means Jehovah is salvation. Now, why does this matter? I think the reason why it matters is because today we call him Jesus. In other places, they may call him Jesus in the Greek culture. In Spanish, they call him Jesus. In other words, Jesus is Jesus. No matter what language you're speaking, we're talking about Jesus. And we're going to say Jesus in this podcast, but clearly the Greek speakers would call him Jesus. And it's the same person. But I really like the meaning of his name, which is that in Jehovah is salvation. Verse 32, the angel says, he shall be great and shall be called the son of the highest. And the Lord will give unto him the throne of his father, David. This is connecting us way back to the prophecy that Nathan gave to David about the throne of David that will continue without end, which then leads us into Luke 130. He shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. And then Mary said to the angel, How shall this be, seeing that I know not a man? And the angel's response. The angel answered and said, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore, that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Now, I want to talk a little bit about that bit right there in verse 35 in the Greek. It's a neuter term. It's hagion. So it can be translated as holy thing. But hagios means holy. So I want to just give an alternate translation that I think might resonate with us a little bit better. Probably a better translation, in my opinion, of that little bit in verse 35 would go something like this. The Holy One that is being born will be called the Son of God. And to me, the angel is saying that there's something different about Jesus. First of all, he's the Holy One. And then second of all, he's the son of God. And the scriptures don't get any more specific here in this part of how, but we know that Jesus comes from his heavenly father. Now, in the Come, Follow Me materials that is provided by the church, they give some really great quotes of how Jesus is a son of his heavenly father, and he's also a son of Mary. So he is mortal, he has the power to die, but from his father, he inherited the power to live. So Jesus is in a unique situation. He is the only one that is able to come down and perform the atonement because he is both God and he is man. You may want to read John chapter 10 as you think about that and study that. Verses 17 and 18, Jesus says, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, that power he received from Mary. And I have power to take it again that power he received from his father. He's the only one who could have worked out the atonement because he's the only one with that type of DNA. 
That's our doctrine. And we want to be very clear what we believe in Jesus, that he is the son of God, the eternal father, and Mary. And that combination is what allowed him to bring about that atoning sacrifice. It's a really important teaching, and I think it's fundamental as Christians to understand this. And just know that the early Christians did struggle trying to understand this issue. And they had questions, you know, is he fully God? Is he fully man? And as they debated this, they really tried to find a position that they would determine to be orthodox. But as Latter-day Saints, we would say he is fully God and he is fully man. He had to have a veil. He had to struggle. He had to learn how to read as a child. We know that he had no sin, but he still had to learn to read Torah. His mother taught him how to do all things, how to walk, how to eat, all the things that normal humans go through. But also, he was a son of God. And over the course of time, he was able to learn who he was. We'll talk more about this as we go through the Gospels. But I just want to really emphasize this, that he really is, verse 35, He is Hagion, he is a holy one, and he is the son of God. The rest of the angel's message is that Elizabeth, who is Mary's cousin, in her old age has conceived, and that she is in her sixth month of pregnancy. And I love verse 37 as just a pause. You know, if I was teaching this in a gospel doctrine class, I probably would write this quote on the board and talk about it in the context of the story, but also how we can apply it in our life. And the verse is, for with God, nothing shall be impossible. That is a great springboard scripture, no matter what setting you're in when you're teaching this, to really have a really good conversation, and the Spirit will come in as people testify how they've seen verse 37 come to pass in their life. I just want to testify of that. There have been times in my life where I have felt the power of God do incredible things in my life, and I just want to say that I know, for with God, nothing shall be impossible. And so with this, after she has the experience with the angel, we read in verse 39 that she goes southward into the hill country, and I believe it's around Jerusalem, it says, into the hill country with haste into a city of Judah, and here she's going to meet Elizabeth. But do you sense in that instruction from the angel the significance of the role that Mary plays in all of this? She is going to raise the Messiah who came through the veil and forgot everything. She has to teach him. She has to help him fall in love with his father. She has to turn his soul to God. Mary had the incredible assignment to prepare Jesus for the world. She was given stewardship over a young man who went through the veil and forgot their premortal life. Doctrine and Covenant section 93 verses 12 through 14 repeatedly sends that message that Jesus went through the veil, forgot everything, and started at the beginning. He did not have the fullness at the first. He did not remember that he was the Jehovah of the Old Testament, that he volunteered in premortal life to be the Messiah. It was Mary who opened his eyes to that assignment and led him to accept and fulfill that assignment. And that is a sacred responsibility because each one of us at one point in our life will receive a stewardship over a divinely appointed person. My children, I believe, were foreordained to come to earth at this point and perform some task. It is my job to prepare them for the world in which they live so that they can faithfully perform that task. And that is why Mary is so preeminent in our faith. 
I want to set her up on a pedestal. I want you to feel the honor that Book of Mormon prophets heaped upon her because of who this woman is and what she did. Just three examples among the others. First Nephi chapter 11, when Nephi sees Mary in vision, he says that he beheld in the city of Nazareth a virgin, and she was exceedingly fair and white. Now, I don't know exactly what he meant by fair and white, but I sense he saw brilliant light radiating from her, that she was filled with light and radiated that white, brilliant light. Later in verse 15, when the angel says, what do you behold, Nephi? He says, a virgin, most beautiful and fair above all other virgins. And again, I don't, I don't think Nephi is describing her physical beauty. I think he's saying the qualities of Mary made her capable of doing that mission, of bringing him into this world and preparing him to succeed in that world. That's why she is the most beautiful and fair of all the other Marys, including myself. I am a Mary in trying to bring my children and prepare them for the world. She is the most beautiful and fair of all the Marys. Number two, in Alma chapter 7, the prophet Alma says in verse 10, he shall be born of Mary at Jerusalem, which is at the land of our forefathers, she being a virgin. And then he adds this phrase, a precious and chosen vessel. I want to be more precious and more chosen like Mary was. I want to be capable of preparing people for success in the world just like she did. She was a precious and chosen, beautiful vessel. Now, one more that just fascinates me to no end. When Lamoni is converted, he goes into a trance, and now we know he's seeing the Savior. When he wakes up from that trance, the first thing he does in Alma chapter 19, verse 12, is he rushes over there and embraces his wife. After having a vision with Christ, he runs over and embraces his wife and says to her, blessed be the name of God and blessed art thou. So why would he run to his wife? Why would he feel so inclined to honor his wife? Well, verse 13 has the answer. For as sure as thou livest, behold, I have seen my Redeemer, and he shall come forth and be born of a woman and he shall redeem all mankind who believe on his name. He was so moved by what Mary did to bring forth this Messiah that I think he ran over and honored his wife as a symbol of all Mary. And I love that. His heart just went out to Mary. And I think we all need to do that. We need to recognize this woman as a great hero. Each one of us will have an assignment like Mary, first of all, as a parent. And we need to do what Mary did and prepare them for the world in which they live. That is why Mary is so highly favored. Now, if I can actually be so bold as to suggest that hers is more important than mine, because if I mess up in my assignment, it's okay. Her son is going to fix it. The hopes and fears of all of our lives rest on her doing her job and raising that son to do what he was foreordained to do. So I recognize the preeminent position that Mary is in, and I honor her as my hero 
on how I can do the same thing with those foreordained souls that have come into my stewardship and need to be prepared for a very difficult world, one that is going to try and destroy them and fight them from completing that mission. I must be more like Mary. So as you study Luke 1, would you look for the qualities that will make me more like Mary? Can I just mention a few? Number one, in verse 28, the very first thing that the angel says is, Hail thou that art highly favored. And then he says this, and maybe this is the only one we really need. Maybe this is the best one. If you want to be more like Mary, get the Lord to be with you. The angel says, the Lord is with thee. I love that that comes first. What makes you a Mary is to have the Lord with you, to raise your children by inspiration, to lead your class by inspiration, to be the bishop of a ward who is led by inspiration. And I'm preparing people for the world because the Lord is with me. Let's move on to number two, second quality. In verse 30, the angel says, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. You may want to take some time and search that phrase in the scriptures. You'll find some wonderful things in the Book of Mormon about how you find favor with God. But I want to point out that you can only find favor with God if you seek favor with God. I think what this is saying is you have sought God's favor over men's favor, over the world's favor, and you have found it. If you seek God's favor, you'll find it. But if you seek the favor of the world, that's what you're going to find. Jesus will say later in John chapter 5, how can you believe who seek honor of one another, of men, of kingdoms, and seek not the glory that cometh from God? Mary sought to be right with God. So you get to choose how you raise your children. Do you raise your children in a way that's pleasing to the world, pleasing to other people, following a pattern that they've set? Or do you raise your children in a way that's pleasing to God? Do you seek favor with God? Third quality is in verse 34. Mary says to the angel, how shall this be, seeing I know not a man? Can I testify, after many years of having a front row seat into the lives of youth in this church, that nothing destroys families like infidelity and the violation of chastity and covenants? Very little in this world is more destructive to families and preparing our children to face the challenges of this world and to turn to God than violating the law of chastity. Let me simply read one verse from the Book of Mormon. Among the many things that Jacob will call the awful consequences of violating the law of chastity, he says the following in the last verse of Jacob chapter 2, Behold, you have done greater iniquities than the Lamanites are brethren. You have broken the hearts of your tender wives and lost the confidence of your children because of your bad examples before them, and the sobbings of their hearts ascend up to God against you, 
and because of the strictness of the word which cometh down against you, many hearts died pierced with deep wounds. Now, I testify that we can overcome violations of chastity. We can restore covenants thanks to the grace of God. But I also testify that avoiding them and quickly repenting of them when we violate them is absolutely essential to being like Mary. There was no question about her chastity, about her virtue. How can this be, seeing I know not a man? She was saying, I will not violate laws of chastity, so let's stay faithful and let's repent when we make mistakes. We can overcome violations, but we must do so if we're really going to fulfill our role as parents and leaders to prepare people for the world. Let me just do a couple more. I'll leave you to find the greater list here, but verse 38 has a fourth quality that I just love. Mary was being asked to be an unwed, pregnant Jewish girl at a time when that was going to cause a great deal of pain in her life. She was asked to do something extremely difficult. And in our role of being Mary and preparing other people for success in this world, we will occasionally be asked to do some difficult things. Some of you have been asked to be a Mary without being able to bear children of your own. Some of you have other challenges that you face. My dear mother was asked to give up one of her children, and he was taken into the spirit world. All of us will be asked to do difficult things, to give up things that will interfere with raising our children or preparing our flock for the world. Whatever those things are, this is the attitude we need to have. Mary, when asked to be an unwed, pregnant Jewish girl, said, Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. I just think that's such a beautiful attitude and why Mary was so great. It's when all of us, any of us, say when God comes asking for a difficult thing, we just simply say, Lord, I'm thy servant. I will go wherever you want me to go. I will say what you want me to say. I will do what you will want me to do. I will be what you want me to be. Lord, behold the servant of the Lord, the handmaid of the Lord. Be it unto me according to thy word. As you read her praise and Elizabeth's conversation, you'll pick out a couple more. I'm just briefly going to mention one. Verse 46, Mary says, my soul doth magnify the Lord. How did Jesus see his father? Where did he see his father? It is my testimony that Jesus came to know his father through the soul of his mother. She made God easy to find for Jesus. She magnified him. Think about the great people in your life who have done the same thing. How many people made God easy to find because they magnified him? They made him larger than life so that you could see him clearly. And they did it through their soul. They didn't necessarily do it through their words as much as they did it with their life. We need to show our children. We need to show the people over whom we have stewardship and the people we shepherd. We need to show them the Father through our own souls. 
I'm going to throw one last one on the list because it's outside of this week's Come Follow Me. It's found in chapter 2 of Luke, verse 19. It says that Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. I want to emphasize the two verbs, she kept and pondered. Mary kept sacred things sacred. She didn't minimize them by blurting them out to people who weren't worthy to receive them. But she continually pondered them. I love Mary with all my soul, and I hope someday to meet her and thank her. I hope on that day I will have done my best to be all that she was, to take the souls that were sent to me and to prepare them for a very difficult world. I hope that those souls who I shepherd can be as successful in their missions as her son was in his. I am grateful and I praise Mary for what she did, and I hope this week you will take some time to do the same. So with that, thanks for listening. Bryce and I will see you in a couple weeks after the holidays. Go and make it a great week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.